On January 6, 1990, a 21-year-old woman, who we'll refer to as BT, was working at a convenience store in Covington, Georgia, when around 4 a.m., she was abducted, forced into a truck, and repeatedly sexually assaulted until she finally escaped 90 minutes later. At the time of the assault, her ex-boyfriend, Ron Jacobson, was 150 miles away in Chattanooga, Tennessee, with his pregnant fiance and her mother. Over the course of several detailed statements, BT maintained that she did not know her attacker and that at one point during the abduction, she thought of fleeing to the home of her friend Ron Jacobson when they were close by. Despite these statements and the lack of any physical or forensic evidence inculpating Ron, police ultimately persuaded BT that she had just repressed the memory of her friend Ron being her actual attacker. At trial, Ron's defense failed to bring up the inconsistencies between BT's many earlier statements to police and the story of Ron being the perpetrator, and with DNA testing only in its infancy, Ron was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. In 2003, Georgia enacted a law that allowed for post-conviction DNA testing, but the Rape Shield Law, a law that is meant to protect rape survivors from irrelevant character assassinations, was first used to bar the DNA testing in this case, and then the introduction of the results when they clearly excluded Ron as BT's attacker. Finally, in 2021, the newly elected district attorney took one look at Ron's case and dismissed all charges. This is Wrongful Conviction. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at, at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see See what music does to people. It gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents 
Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. I'm your host, Jason Flom, and today's story is terrifying for a number of reasons. First, because of all the things that should have pointed investigators away from Ron Jacobson, not Adam, but even more so because once DNA testing was available to exonerate him, the DA fought tooth and nail both to block that testing and then to maintain a conviction that they knew was unjust. So, first of all, Ron... I'm sorry you're here because of the circumstances that brought you here, but I'm happy and honored to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. And with Ron is one of my favorite human beings, Ron's incredible attorney and champion, who is a driving force, not just in the Innocence Project, but also in the movement for justice across the board. And of course, I'm talking about a voice you'll recognize, Vanessa Potkin. So Vanessa, welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. It's fantastic to be here. Okay, so before all this happened, Ron, you were engaged, a Navy veteran, a father-to-be, living and working between Georgia and Tennessee. Can you tell us a little bit about your life before this terrible series of events took place? I was working as an auto mechanic, and I was doing real good, making good money. My girlfriend was pregnant with our son, and we were planning on getting married. I rented a nice house in, in Georgia. You know, very middle class, comfortable life. My life was really, really come together at that point. When this happened, you know, everything I worked for was gone. Right. So you were renting a place in Georgia, but you were kind of spending part of your time in Chattanooga, Tennessee with your pregnant fiance. So things are sailing along smoothly for now. Had you had any previous run-ins with the law? Yes, that was one of the reasons I was in Georgia. I had an auto theft charge back in the 80s and I was on parole and I was doing good, you know, no violations, and I wanted to put everything behind me and change, get on with my life. And before we get to the crime, a very important fact in this case is that you and the victim, this woman who we're referring to as BT, you two had dated at some point prior to the incident, right? Yes. I met her one time. Then uh, about a couple months later, her mother was dating my roommate, and her mother mentioned BT, she's working down here at a golden pantry off I-20. She would like to see you, talk to you. So, you know, I drove on down. We talked, and when she got off of work, we drove back to Atlanta, went out to Little Five Points, to an Irish pub, and we started seeing each other, I want to say over October. So you dated her for approximately how long, Ron? I want to say four weeks, three, four weeks. All right. So, Vanessa, take us back to the incident itself. On the night of January 6, 1990, it's an awful, unspeakable crime. But just walk us through it, okay? So, BT was working overnight at the Golden Pantry convenience store and was abducted into a white grayish truck and driven up the interstate where the assailant beat her, forced her to perform oral sex, at some point pulled over and vaginally and anally raped her. The assailant kept driving and actually ran out of gas. 
And so they were pulled over on the side of the road and somebody stopped seeing the car in distress on the side of the road. And the assailant got into the car with this good Samaritan and drove off, presumably to get gas. And so BT saw this as her opportunity to escape. She ran to a nearby house and ultimately knocked on the door. The person who lived there, you know, opened it up and saw BT, who was bloody and shaken up and called police. At this point, the sheriff's office actually had already arrived at the Golden Pantry because a customer had come in, noticed that nobody was in the store, saw blood in the store in disarray, and so had called the sheriff's office. And somebody from a convenience store across the way had said that they saw BT getting into this truck. And so she was immediately taken to the hospital. They performed a sexual assault kit and recovered male DNA Yeah, and they found more evidence as well, right? A bloody handprint on the wall, a folding knife outside on the ground. And the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, the GBI, performed blood tests on the knife and the handprint. So they had tons of evidence. I imagine they also had a description of the truck. Now, was the assailant wearing a mask by any chance? No, but it's hard to know actually what really happened because BT gave different stories to the police. So in The week right after the crime, she talked to the police on three different occasions. And the first time she did, she gave a really detailed statement. And she said that she was working at the convenience store and that a group had come in of two guys and two girls earlier in the evening, and that one of the men returned several hours later. And that was the person who came behind the counter and ultimately abducted her. And in this statement, she was extremely detailed and very specific about the assailant being a stranger. She told police that she said to him, I'm quoting, I said, what did I ever do to you? I don't even know you. She said, I just knew my own personal opinion. He had come by the store, saw me earlier, got the idea that I might be there alone, come in there. Sure enough, I wasn't so busy. So he took off, young girl alone, three o'clock in the morning. Why not? So she's very detailed about this being a stranger. And she even says it's this person who was with a group earlier in the evening. And then she goes on to give other statements. Two days after the attack, she gives a description of her assailant. She talks about him being 5'9 or 5'10. She wasn't clear if he had tattoos. Of course, at that time, Ron is a half a foot taller. He's 6'3. He has multiple tattoos. So she's describing somebody who's not Ron. And then she gives a third statement, right, which is a written statement. And the police take her on a drive-through of the route that the assailant had taken her. And she points several locations where she was sexually assaulted and walks through a lot of details. She says in this statement that at one of the stops during the attack that she thought this could be an opportunity to escape and that she had a friend, Ronald Jacobson, who lived nearby. And she said, you know, maybe I could escape if I have the chance and I could get help from him. I mean, it's all craziness. The victim, granted she's traumatized for sure, but she said she was hoping to escape to the home of none other than Ron Jacobson. How do we square that with the idea that Ron Jacobson, she later says, was the guy who was attacking her? I mean, how did they eventually convince her to identify him? And they interviewed her father as well. I mean, how does that play into this? 
So she told police that at the time that the assailant came into the store, that there was somebody else with her. And she couldn't really remember who it was, but she thought it was Bob Knight, who was an older man who had worked at the store previously, but was friends with her father. In the days following her attack, Bob Knight and the father are talking and the father says, well, you know, she was having some issues with this guy. She dated Ron Jacobson. Maybe he did it. So Bob Knight takes Ron Jacobson's name to the police and says, I think I know who the assailant is, Ron Jacobson. Bob Knight had never met Ron Jacobson. He's just going off of the statement that the dad said. So police pull a picture of Ron Jacobson, his DMV photograph, and show it to Bob Knight, who then says, that's the person I saw in the store. But I mean, that lineup or photo show up procedure is just bonkers in of itself, because they give him Ron Jacobson's driver's license, which presumably has his name on it. And he says, yeah, that's the guy. (laughs) And so based on that, the police go back to BT and say, we think we know who did it. It's Ron Jacobson. And she says, no, it wasn't. So she's adamant that it's not Ron. And then the police want to polygraph her. So you have BT saying, no, it's not Ron. And the police saying, we don't believe you and we're going to polygraph you. I've never even seen this circumstance in any case that I've worked on where the police seek to polygraph the victim because the victim is not identifying the person who they believe is the suspect. But that's what was happening here. It turns out that BT at the time of her attack was newly pregnant. And so the polygrapher refused to administer the polygraph. And instead, the police consult with a behavioral analyst at the Georgia Bureau of Investigation that says to them, go back to her, talk to her. Sometimes victims repress things, tell her, you know what happened, and eventually she'll remember and she'll come forward with the information. And so that's what happens. They go back to her and then she eventually says it was Ron. And then six days later, January 12th, Ron, they brought you in. How did that go? I mean, you must have been shocked to even find yourself in that situation in the first place. Well, I was at work in Atlanta, and the phone rang, and it was my pro officer. He said, look, I need you to come into the office as fast as possible. I said, okay, I'll be there. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, it's a random urinalysis in and out. So I told my boss, man, I said, look, I got to go. I'll be back an hour. So I walk into the pro office. Another pro officer walks in behind me pushed me against the wall, put me in handcuffs, says I'm under arrest. So now I'm wondering, you know, for what? I didn't violate parole. And they said, no, for a sexual assault of this victim, BT. And so I explained, I said, BT? Nah. I was in Tennessee with Janie, my girlfriend. And they called the sheriff's department and the GBI agent, sheriff's department come up, picked me up, drove me back to the county jail. So it was a total shock to me. So police didn't record the interrogation, but nonetheless, they went ahead and issued a police report that was written in the first person as if Ron had written it, right? And then, of course, to double down on this obvious malfeasance, they also never showed a copy of the report to Ron or his team to determine whether it was accurate or not. And Ron was arrested the same day, charged with aggravated sodomy, kidnapping with bodily injury and aggravated assault. And then six months later, Ron went to trial in Newton County Superior Court. And in the opening statement, the prosecutor, now get this, okay? The prosecutor acknowledged 
that the case was problematic. He said that the police, quote, went back to BT and kind of told her who it was. And at that point in time, she said, yes, it was him. And she went and told the whole same story again, but just supplied his name at this point in time, unquote. So from what we already know of the investigation, that summary is misleading at best. There was, of course, zero physical or forensic evidence tying Ron to the crime. So it comes down to the problematic testimonies of Bob Knight and BT, to which the jury was simply not aware of how these pieces of evidence were gathered. Now, Knight testified that he recognized Ron as the man who came into the store that night as he was leaving. And then BT went ahead and identified you, Ron, as her attacker. And she said she didn't immediately identify you because you had threatened to kill her if she did. Now, Vanessa, go ahead and tell us about the defense here. BT is never really confronted with the detailed statements that she gave implicating somebody else. It is mentioned at trial that she initially didn't say it was Ron, and she says it was because, you know, she was scared of her life. But just not saying it was Ron at the beginning could mean you didn't say it in the first hour or two. It doesn't mean, you know, and the jury never was told. You gave these really detailed statements, right? You talked about even going to Ron for help. You talked about this group of people coming in and one of the guys coming back and you saying to him, I don't even know you. I mean, none of that came out to the jury. So there's two possibilities, right? It wasn't turned over and either the police buried it or the prosecution buried it, or it was turned over and his defense attorney just failed to use it. I don't have the answer to that because the records aren't perfect. And because Ron's lawyer was so bad that it is possible that he didn't use it. and. The witnesses that Ron had in his favor to say that he was 150 miles away when this happened, it was his girlfriend at the time who was pregnant, her mother, they were watching TV at 2.33 in the morning. He's hours away from where this crime happened at shortly, probably after 4 a.m. And there's reason that they would remember this night. It was just within days of his girlfriend's birthday. He had gone up there that weekend. He brought her a car as a present. And so... It's just none of that really came out at trial to really add credibility and show why these people who were testifying and had been with Ron, you know, why they were so believable and credible. And that just didn't come out. It was just like five questions and you're done. The defense that Ron had, I mean, this is where you feel like you're in a movie, like this is a horror movie. You're from Brooklyn. You're stuck basically in Georgia you're now facing trial and your lawyer is scared of his own shadow or just doesn't care. And I think one just being an outsider in this place, which is, you know, close to Atlanta, but worlds away, right? Even on his booking sheet, there was a line for deformities and the deformity listed is Brooklyn accent. Ron, what are your recollections of the trial? Stranger in a strange land. My trial attorney came to see me, I believe, maybe twice at the most prepare. He never talked to none of my witnesses till the day of the trial. So the night before, my attorney comes walking down to the jail and he said, we got the trial in the morning. Try to get a haircut and cut your beard. I got an old rusty razor. I trimmed my beard off. So the day of the trial, I go in. Now you got this prosecutor. Telling the jury, look at him. He tried to change his appearance. He shaved his beard off. So basically, everything my trial attorney did was negative. When he had BT on the witness stand, he popped the question off as well. 
watch your relationship tonight. The district attorney, John I, you know, he jumped up. So, whoa, whoa, whoa. He told the judge, get the jury out of here. And they disciplined my attorney. They brought up the rape shield. You're not supposed to ask no kind of sexual relationships, past relationships. But, you know, it was too late. The jury already heard this question. So they bring it back. And from that point on, my attorney sat there and drew little sailboats on his pad. So it was a foregone conclusion that I was going to get convicted. He drew little sailboats on his pad. Yes. And you're sitting there watching him do this. So you've got like a split screen horror show. You've got these people up there telling all kinds of lies about you. And you've got the one person who's there that's supposed to be your last line of defense, really, drawing fucking sailboats on a pad. It's really nuts. And then, of course, it gets worse because on June 12, 1990, the jury convicted you of aggravated sodomy, kidnapping with bodily injury, and aggravated assault and sentenced you to life in prison. It was a horror show. Then I took the stand in my own defense. My trial attorney, he never really asked me any questions. But then the prosecutor, he told the jury, everything I said, I'm a pathological liar, habitual liar. I brought up about the police, you know, with the statements. And, oh, so you're accusing the police of being liars when you're the liar. But, you know, small town politics. And here I am, you know, from Brooklyn, outsider, New Yorker. And this is what happens. A gross miscarriage of justice. Cost me 30 years, 8 months, and 13 days of my life. This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company, and by Accenture, a global professional services company with leading capabilities in digital, cloud, and security. Working to reform the criminal justice system is a key pillar of the AIG Pro Bono program, which provides free legal services and other support to many nonprofit organizations and individuals most in need. As part of Accenture's commitment to racial and civil justice, Accenture's Legal Access Program provides pro bono legal services in partnership with more than 40 organizations, bringing meaningful change to people and communities worldwide. When I first went to prison, it's basically like a wild dog pack. Everybody wants to be an alpha male. So you don't trust nobody. You got to watch your back. You got to watch what you say. And the guards, you know, they don't care. People getting killed there every week. No prosecution on them because you got 20-year-old kids with life sentences. No hope of getting out. So they're going to do what they want. When you first get convicted, you go through the stages. A lot of anger. Anger at the world. Then it's acceptance. You say to yourself, okay, this happened to me. What are you going to do about it? So now... You educate yourself. Go to the law library. You start reading. Start researching. And I happened to be watching the OJ trial. And I seen Barry Sheck talking about DNA. I talked to my mom. I said, look, that DNA is going to clear me one day. So I started researching. I seen Barry Sheck wrote a book, Actual Innocence. So my mom sent it to me. I read this book like 16 times. And at the time, around 2003, Georgia passed a law for post-conviction DNA testing. So I sat down, wrote 13, 15 page letter to Georgia Innocent Project and the Innocent Project in New York. And Georgia people wrote me right back, said, okay, we'll help you. We'll take your case, send us your transcripts and everything. So I did. About a year goes by, they send everything back, says, at this time, we can't do nothing for you, but your case is still open. 10 years go by. 
It was in uh, 2013. Out of the blue, I get a letter, go up to the mailroom, get legal mail. And here it is, a letter from the Innis Project says, we're going to accept your case. And it was just like phew, a lot of load off my back. So I run over to the law library, get everything notarized, get straight in the mail. And I've been working with Vanessa seven to eight years now. It's been an uphill battle. Yeah, uphill sounds about right. Um, because from what I understand is that this DA, who's now, by the way, a judge, her name's Leah Lazan, she fought both to disallow the DNA testing to begin with and then to disallow the admission of results that they knew would have cleared you, which is just freaking nuts. So, Vanessa... Can you tell us about the fight against this DA, Leila Zahn, who was just hell-bent on maintaining this awful injustice? The DNA test results that we obtained clearing Ron came back in 2017. And when we got those results, the DA opposed relief, fought against a new trial, and her primary argument was Ron could not use these test results to prove his innocence because the rape shield law prevented him from using the DNA to secure his exoneration. So the rape shield law is a law that has been enacted to protect victims of sexual assault from defense attorneys going in and trying to say, oh, well, you know, you slept with 20 other people. And so you weren't really sexually assaulted, or you consented or try to use a victim's past sexual history to somehow undermine the veracity of his or her claim. And it has nothing to do with if you have scientific evidence that goes to the heart of who committed the crime, right? But this is how twisted the state was in this case. Their position was, we know Ron was the assailant. So if there's some male DNA in her rape kit, that by the way, we know couldn't come from a prior act of consensual sex because she told hospital personnel she hadn't had sex in a week before the attack. So we know it couldn't have come from anyone else. But their position was, since it excluded Ron, it had to come from somebody else. She must be lying. She must have not been honest about another encounter. And therefore, Ron can't use it. And it's like, that was crazy. And even ultimately, the DA recognized it was crazy because of some cases that were going on in the Georgia Supreme Court at the time. So she tried to use the rape shield law as a rape shield sword against Ron. Then when that didn't prevail and his conviction was vacated, he was being held in the county jail with no bail. He was in on a sexual assault for which he had already served 30 years and the court declined to set bail. And so he was in jail for over a year with no activity. The state had made no real attempt to bring this case to retrial, but wouldn't dismiss the charges. And then, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic hits. And so in April of 2020, we make this emergency motion to set bail in Ron's case. This is when the pandemic's taking off. It starts to spread like wildfire in jails. People in jails are sitting ducks, right? They don't have access to masks and Purell and all of the things that people were clamoring for out in society. And so it's at this point that we finally are approaching a hearing date. And by the way, in this jurisdiction, if you file a motion, the only way you can get on the court's calendar is if the DA sets it down. So for a while, she wouldn't even set this. We couldn't even get the motion set. And finally, we get an opportunity that a court's going to hear it. And she makes this offer to Ron. You know, if you just plead guilty, you can get out tomorrow. She even offers him an Alford plea, which means that he could have maintained his innocence, but still pled guilty would have the same effect as a conviction. 
but he could have gotten out, you know, the next day if he had just said, I did it. But by saying no, Ron wasn't just taking this stance. He was also risking his life. You know, we didn't know what was going to go on with COVID. He didn't have access to even protect himself. So it was even more dangerous than usual, this thought that, you know, by saying no, Ron could have died in prison and just never had the opportunity to even walk out. And then, of course, after he turns down the deal, the state goes into court and argues that Ron shouldn't get bail because he's too dangerous. So he's too dangerous to walk out of prison if he's maintaining his innocence. But if he had just said he was guilty, you were going to let him go, right? And then to top it all off, the prosecutor says, we oppose bail, but if you're going to set bail, set it at 50000 And the court says, I'm going to set it at 500000 I mean, what master did these people serve? Because it certainly isn't justice. And Ron, can you take us back to that moment when they offered you the plea, where if you just accepted it and said you were guilty, that you could walk out the door the next day, right? The very next day after 30 years in prison. I mean, what went through your mind in that moment? I thought about that for a split second. And I said, well, if I give in, I've been saying I'm innocent for 30 years. All of a sudden now I'm going to change my story. I said, you know, the worst they can do if they reconvict me is give me another life sentence. They already took everything from me. My mom died in 2010. My brother died while I was in prison. I'm living up here with my sister now, helping her. She's supported me for 30 years. It's my turn to give back, help her. So by not giving in, if somebody hears about my case that's in the same position and want to take a plea bargain, I'm not holding it against them. You know, it's their personal choice. But if they look at me and they take some strength and say, hey, I'm innocent, let's prove it. Don't give in to these bastards. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. 
Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So... How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's incredible to hear you say that you thought about it for a split second. It's like you've already seen the worst aspects of our system so you knew what they could do to you. It took a lot of courage. And like you said, everybody makes that choice differently. It's another sort of sick thing about our system that people are put into that position, having already been through the unbelievable trauma of wrongful incarceration for decades, and then faced with possibly waiting years for another trial, and then potentially being framed again. But you stood by your guns and Ultimately, that was clearly the right decision, and all of us are thrilled that you've been vindicated, exonerated, and proven to have been telling the truth all along. Vanessa, help me out here, because this is really, it's evil. I mean, what they did to him is evil, right? I mean, that's not too strong of a word. Well, I guess it's not when you consider that the district attorney, Leila Zahn, who was handling his case, had been exposed for having a little toy electric chair on her desk. I think you definitely identified the mentality that's going on here. And Ron, I want to highlight the fact that you ended up with a literal dream team here, right? I mean, you have Vanessa and the Innocence Project. I want to also shout out the other good guys here. Donald Samuel and Amanda Clark Palmer from the Atlanta law firm of Garland, Samuel, and Loeb. My understanding is that they played a really significant role in this. Am I right? Yes, yes. In 2013, when the Innocent first came on board, that was such a relief. 
over the years, talking on the phone, getting the information about my case and learning more and seeing how the process works. It's amazing, especially Vanessa. And now that I'm out, I have access to the internet so I can see the scope of the Innocent Project and how many people they help and affected their lives in a positive way. Don and Amanda in Georgia, Vanessa, all the paralegals, the law students, I can name them all. I'm in their debt. And we did ultimately work with the Georgia Innocence Project as well. They were really instrumental when we were fighting to get the DNA testing and have been a great partner with us. So ultimately, justice was delayed by three decades, but not denied. In June 2020, District Attorney Leila Zahn, one of the major villains in this case, in an ironic twist of fate, her good fortune was the best thing that could have happened for Ron, because when she was appointed to a Superior Court judgeship and her chief deputy, Randy McGinley, was sworn in as the new DA, then also elected that November, he promised a review of Ron's case. At this point, Ron was already out on bail, but still not free until on August 25th, 2021, DA McGinley had reviewed Ron's case and dismissed all the charges. On that day, Vanessa called me and she cried and said, you're free. They dropped the charges. Like, it stunned me. I said, nah. It took a couple days of walking around and letting us sink in. I'm finally free. Then, you know, you start thinking about how many more people still in prison that have no chance, have no help. And it it hurts, you know, it bothers you. Because after so many years in prison, my psyche, you know, is still there with them people. It's, It's something that I can't let it go. And... There's no telling how many countless people that are still innocent, still in prison with no help, never going to get no help. So you know, I feel blessed. Don't take nothing for granted no more. Just one day at a time. Yeah. And it's really incredible to have you here today, just weeks since you were fully exonerated. So for those of you who are moved by Ron's story and who would like to help him as he begins this next chapter of his life, there's an Amazon wish list as well as a mightycause.com story. We're going to put links to both of these in the bio where you can donate to help Ron. So please go click on the link in the bio. Do it now. We're going to join you in doing so here at Wrongful Conviction as well. So now this is a part of the show called Closing Arguments, and it works like this. First of all, I thank you again, Ron Jacobson, for having the courage to come here and share your incredible story. And of course, Vanessa Potkin for just being such a, you know, superwoman, freedom fighter, all around, just uh, awesome human. And so thanks to both of you for being here on the show. And now closing arguments works like this. I turn my mic off, kick back in my chair, leave my headphones on and just leave your microphones on so you can share any other thoughts that we may have left out or anything that's on your mind of any kind. So Vanessa, with all due respect to you, we'll save the best for last. And of course, Ron, that's you. You're the featured guest here. So Vanessa, why don't you go first and then just hand it off to Ron. And that's how we'll close out the show. You know, being here today and listening to Ron speak, it's just hitting me particularly now, his incredible strength and fortitude to have turned down that offer. And we just know how coercive the legal system is pre-trial. The state tries to extort guilty pleas to resolve cases. The stakes are so high that you're incentivized to just take a plea even when you're innocent or just give up your constitutional rights to a trial. So 
I am respecting the amount of courage and strength that took you, Ron, to make that decision and stand up to the system. And I'm so proud that you prevailed. It's making me think about the judges again, that the person who really dragged this out through so many years is now on the bench. We need to get progressive prosecutors in place, but we also need to make sure that there are judges on the bench who are going to also be in line with change. And so I think those are the takeaways I'm experiencing. In addition to Ron, you're just an all around such an incredible person. And, you know, when Ron got out while he was still fighting to get the charges dismissed, he started going on social media and he was on Facebook. And when you're representing someone who could face a retrial, it's a real stressor to have them out there making all these comments. So I thought about reaching out to Ron and saying, hey, fall back a little bit. And I started reading what he was saying and his perspective on the legal system and change. And it was just so right on that I was like, I'm not saying anything. Keep going, Ron. Well, you know, my heart and soul bleeds for all my brothers and sisters still behind the walls with no hope. And if I could be a voice in the wilderness to help them, you know, that's my goal in life right now. Do you use my exoneration help the next person pay it forward whatever it takes and the innocent project and the innocent network they do incredible work and i thank them every day thank you for listening to wrongful conviction please support your local innocence organizations and go to the links in our bio to see how you can help I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Justin Golden, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis. The music on this show, as always, is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number 1. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. 
Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love at First Listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people, it gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. 